Welcome to the Dewey Decimal Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association. We have a great show lined up for you all this month, uh, but before we begin, I have to acknowledge a milestone. This episode marks the one-year anniversary of the Dewey Decimal Podcast. That's right. In April 2016, this fledgling little project of ours popped up in the world, and it's uh, grown with unexpected leaps and bounds since. Really, it's kind of blown our minds, the reception that uh, Dewey Decibel has received. Uh, we've been privileged to host uh, some great guests and conversations over the past year, and I know that the coming year is going to be even better, so please stick around. I promise great things. Uh, I know you've heard my voice and some other contributors over the past year, uh, but this podcast would not be possible without many, many, many people in the background, uh, without the support of everyone at the American Library Association, everyone at the American Libraries Magazine, and in particular, a really awesome advisory and planning board who uh, is really vital to making sure that each one of these episodes comes together. Uh, thank you. All of, all of you. you. You know who you are. You're awesome. Uh, and thank all of you for listening, for tuning in each month. Uh, like I said, we promise another year of vital, interesting interviews, so please stick around. Uh, and all this talk, talk of the future, it kind of brings us right into uh, this month's episode. Uh, today, on the Dewey Decimal Podcast, we look into the future, uh, specifically the future of libraries. As we all know, the profession that we're in, it's an ever-changing one. And we have to stay on top of the latest trends and technologies in order to offer the best user experience for our patrons. Uh, but in this world that we find ourselves where we're inundated with information, new means of communication, new gadgets and change, separating the signal from the noise can be really hard. How do we know exactly what should hold our focus moving into the future? And this month on the Dewey Decimal Podcast, we talked to three people who tackled that concern daily. First, I talked to Miguel Figueroa. He's the director of the American Library Association's Center for the Future of Libraries. We chat about the center's mission and what it does to help libraries move into the future. Next, we have a conversation with Kim Fender. She's the director of the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County, Ohio. Kim and I discuss how her library has shifted to a fully mobile model. And finally, moving from the micro to the macro, Dewey Decibel correspondent Tara Denkowski talks to Ryan Gravel. He's an urban visionary, planner, designer, and author of the book, Where We Want to Live, Reclaiming Infrastructure for a New Generation of Cities. Tara sat down with Ryan at the ALA Midwinter Meeting Atlanta this past January, discussed the future in a broader sense, specifically how the modern city will change, and much more. But first, a word from a sponsor. How can you transform library data into impactful services? What feature do users value the most when evaluating information sources? Which were the most popular interlibrary loan titles for the last five years? What does S.R. Ranganathan, the father of modern library science, have to say about shyness? All of these questions have been explored on the OCLC Next blog. So many libraries operate on behalf of a very local, specific audience. Whether you're at a public library serving one city or town, or an academic library taking care of your students and faculty, you best understand your users' needs. But that can be a challenge when it comes to synthesizing trends among libraries of different types, sizes, and countries. That's where OCLC Next comes in. Because of OCLC's global reach, staff and member leaders from many disciplines are exposed to developments and ideas that reach across the entire library environment. They wrap their thoughts into quick, compact posts in order to share knowledge from the world's libraries with you. Check out oc.lc next to read the latest post or subscribe to a weekly email. 
The American Library Association's Center for the Future of Libraries launched in 2014. And in the three years since, it's been a trailblazer as it helps libraries identify emerging trends relevant to their communities, as it promotes forward-thinking initiatives, and as it builds connections with innovative thinkers who can help libraries move into the future. Uh, Miguel Figueroa, the center's uh, director, spoke with Dewey Decimal recently about the center and its work. Okay, we're here with uh, Miguel Figueroa. He's the uh, director of the ALA's Center for the Future of Libraries. Miguel, thanks for joining Dewey Decimal Podcast. Sure, thanks. Glad to be on. Um, for our listeners um, that might not know much about the Center for the Future of Libraries, can you just give them a quick little overview? What does the center do? Sure. So we're actually modeled on uh, some work that the American Alliance of Museums uh, has been doing since 2008. They have a Center for the Future of Museums. It's really an opportunity to uh, look beyond what the association normally does, which is kind of look inward at, at the profession and our best practices and, and policies and other types of things, and really have an opportunity to look outside of the profession at some of the trends and changes that are happening uh, that could have a longer term effect on libraries. And so to do that, we, do, we invest in a significant amount of trend scanning and also starting to think with other innovators, both inside the profession and outside the profession, to think about how we can productively look at the future of libraries. Um, so it's been a lot of professional development type of work, uh, networking across the, the, the profession and industry, and, and really trying to assemble some of the best thinking to help all libraries uh, look productively into the future. Now you mentioned that you do a lot of trend tracking, and if, you, if any of our listeners go to the uh, center's website, you have it beautifully and very colorfully mapped out <laughs> uh, what you are focusing on. And since the, the, the center launched in 2014, now here, are, here we are three years later, um, what, are you what are you tracking now, and I guess um, what changes have you seen in the past three years? Um, so we continue to have a broad uh, focus for our tracking. So most futurists will say you need to organize your trend scanning. This is an indicator that librarians would be really good at futuring. Um, we have to organize our trend scanning and we look across broad categories of change. So on our website we look at changes in society, technology, education, the environment, politics and government, economics and demographics. And a lot of our, the members of our profession are already invested in each of these categories. And so really our scanning tries to uh, give equal weight and measure to lots of different areas of change. Um, we're not just saying, oh, this month we're focused on technology per se, or next month we'll be focused on economics. We try to do a really balanced approach to things. Um, it's been really interesting because it's a great way for lots of different members of the profession to chime in and say, I have insights around this issue. And that's probably been one of the greatest lessons learned is that all of us can contribute to this futuring project. Um, all of us have an opportunity to share some of the insights that we have from our unique perspectives. But it really only makes sense when we start to look at it all together. Um, so most recently, you know, we've seen a flurry of things around this fake news idea and other types of things. But of course, we're still contending with things like political polarization and political divide and increasing concern about civic spaces um, and changes in demographic, you know, immigration and other types of issues have come to the forefront in the most recent months. Um, and of course, there's always the looming interest of technology, virtual reality, voice-activated controls, um, uh, artificial intelligence and algorithms and learning machines. You know, even driverless cars, which maybe we thought were a little bit further afield from the library profession, we see so much news about them that I think it's forcing a lot of members of the profession to start thinking, 
well, what if driverless cars really took off? How would it change reading habits and interaction among people? So it's interesting all the implications that come to the forefront when you look across the news. Yeah, it's fascinating. Like I said, if you go to the uh, the center site, you can see everything that's being tracked there, and the the scope is yeah. is impressive and it's amazing. And that's thanks to people chiming in and saying you really need to talk about this or creative placemaking or the unplug movement or resilience. Um, our sustainability roundtable really pushed for that as a major trend, and indeed they're right; it resonates across the profession. Uh, so it's it's the it's the combination of a lot of good people's work and insights. Awesome. Now you you'd mentioned it's the the the, the people factor. Um, we're actually catching you right now between trips. Yeah. <laughs> you were in uh, Nebraska last week, and you're on your way to Oklahoma and Montreal. Yes. So what are you doing out there? What uh, what are you what are you hearing from people and uh, what, do you, what are your travels? What are you doing when they're taking you? So we end up doing a lot of, tra I end up doing a lot of training, um, basically kind of sharing some of the lessons we're learning through this futuring process, um, talking a little bit to librarians about how futuring, futuring and foresight work, and really also making the strong case that as librarians and information professionals, we would be really well suited to thinking about this. It's all about turning a lot of our librarian skills um, from serving our users to then serving ourselves in that sort of uh, assembling information, prioritizing information, and making strategic decisions based on the information that we've gathered about trends and changes. Um, we've also invested more heavily in trying to help librarians uh, use some of this futuring technique to drive innovation. And so uh, in most of my recent workshops, I've tried to incorporate an interactive uh, session, hour or an hour and a half, where librarians really talk about, well, these are the trends that I'm most interested in, these are the values that brought me into the profession or that I continue to see as important to my community. And then to think productively about a positive future that librarians could, could provide to their communities. I've never ceased to be amazed by some of the ideas that our library colleagues come up with. I mean, I know we're a smart group of people, but it's always amazing to hear the different directions that we could go in. And I think the greatest lesson that we learn is that as we start to think with trends and changes and think about our library values, that we can come up with great innovative solutions that we can actually start to incrementally work towards in the coming weeks or months or years. Um, I've been amazed that uh, librarians will throw out this big idea, but at the core of that idea is something that we could transition to in the next month or so by reallocating some budget, maybe some staff time, investing in some professional development, and really starting, starting to make uh, headway towards that, uh, that innovative future. Now we've been talking a lot about um, looking at the future of, of the profession. Now what about the future of the center itself? What, uh, what do you have coming up uh in the next months or years in the center itself? So we've tried to invest a little bit more in professional development and continuing education. For those people who attended midwinter, um, they may have seen a series of sessions on the Symposium on the Future of Libraries. And again, a great opportunity to see the variety of thought that happens across this profession. Um, we had, I think, over 25 concurrent sessions and three plenary sessions that really started to say, okay, what are the things that libraries are doing that indicate possible futures that we could encounter? And uh, it was great to see not only just the variety of ideas, but how many of us embraced those. So you might go to a session that, was, uh, that featured a public library speaker, but it was great to see academic librarians and school librarians and public librarians coming together around that topic. 
So I think we're going to start looking more at continuing education. Um, we still have a lot of interest in innovation. Um, the center recently launched a Future of Libraries Fellowship Program uh, where we were going to invest $10,000 into a productive idea for helping libraries think about the future. Um, we received very good response to that and we've actually selected a fellow that should be announced pretty soon, um, hopefully around the time that this podcast goes live. Um, but again, it's just a, a lots of great ideas. So. We started this center pretty lean. I, I work kind of by myself, which isn't the worst thing in the world, but it also gets a little lonely. Uh, so we're hoping that uh, we can start to bring more and more people together and start to invest in those directions of continuing education, uh, forming innovation, and creating a real community for, for people to come together and collaborate. Awesome. Miguel, thanks so much for talking to Dewey Decibel. We really appreciate it. And uh, the center are doing great things. And please visit the, uh, the website. and. Uh, Learn more. Sure, it's ala.org slash library of the future. We try to make it easy, and uh, thanks so much for letting me join you. Thank you. The Global Library Event of the Year, the ALA Annual Conference and Exhibition, is coming up fast. June 22nd through 27th fast, here in Chicago to be exact. And I hope you're ready, because we have a spectacular, spectacular set of programs lined up for 2017. Thousands of scheduled events, forums, and panels. An exhibit hall packed with vendors showcasing the latest in technology, publishing, and more. And a really awesome set of speakers, including Sarah Jessica Parker, Rishma Sajani, Gene Yang, Colson Whitehead, Bill Nye the Science Guy, Nikki Giovanni, and so many more. I, I can go on and on and on. You can find more info about the 2017 ALA Annual Conference Exhibition and register at alaannual.org. At the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County in Ohio, librarians have moved out from behind the service desk and into the library. This forward-thinking decision to take library services directly to patrons is made possible by the library going fully mobile. Staff use tablets, and patrons can access other services via self-serve stations. Now, it's a recognizable retail model, and it's one that's taking hold at libraries across the country. In our previous segment, Miguel Figueroa mentioned a symposium for the future of libraries that was held at the ALA Midwinter meeting this past January in Atlanta. Kim Fender, director of the Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Library, presented at that symposium about her library's shift into this new mobile model. I spoke with her recently to learn more. Hey, we're here with Kim Fender. She's the director of the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County. Kim, thanks for joining the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Glad to be here, Phil. Thanks for having us on. Absolutely. Um, I, 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 some of our listeners might not know this, but I'm from the Cincinnati area, and I got my, my uh, career started at a newspaper just two blocks south of the main branch in Cincinnati, the Cincinnati Public Library. And I spent, I don't even know how many countless days, lunch hours, and after work hours at that branch. So Cincinnati Public Library has a place near and dear to my heart. So um, thank you so much, Kimber, for uh, joining us uh, today. I really appreciate it. Well, welcome back. Now, on our previous segment, uh, I spoke with Miguel Figueroa. He's the director of the Center for Future Libraries, and he mentioned uh, uh, the symposium on the future of libraries that uh, we conducted at the uh, ALA Midwinter Meeting Exhibits in Atlanta just in January. And you um, were one of the presenters at the symposium, and you presented Going Fully Mobile, Eliminate the Desk, Eliminate Barriers, Improve Service, which you um, detailed how Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Libraries, you uh, got rid of the service desk at five-year branches and um, some of your other departments, and you've become a fully mobile staff. 
And um, I guess I'd really like to talk to you about that today. Um, what prompted the library to move in that direction? Well, it was, it was a long journey to get to that point. We had started converting to more of a self-service model with self-service checkout in 2007. And we really uh, started looking at what was going on at our service desk because we noticed at lunchtime and at the end of the workday, we had long lines of people waiting for service at our desk. And uh, what we realized in looking at that was the work happening at the desk was quite different. So you might be picking up a hold, you might be checking out a book, you might be returning a book, you might be applying for a library card, paying a fine, all of these different things happening at the same service point. And some of those things were a simple and quick transaction, and other things like getting the library card or perhaps if you had a problem with your card that just paying the fine didn't resolve, um, took a significant amount of time. And so people would then get stuck behind you in that line when all they needed to do was drop three books off and, and they'd be out the door or, or grab their hold and check it out and, and be gone. So we looked at how we could distribute that work to different service points uh, to get rid of those lines. And so what we did was went to the self-checkout, and then we added the self-service holds, and then uh, we continued to look for ways to make more and more pieces of this service um, self-sufficient. So we also had um, uh, self-registration and now self-check-in so that all of the work being done at that desk had really been, at least for circulation, distributed uh, to other points where people could come in, complete their library card application, and the only thing they needed the staff member for was to check their ID and actually hand them the card with the number assigned to their registration. So we were able to really distribute that work. And then when we got to that point, we realized that there was not um, – as much need for the desk as there had been in years past. We had simultaneous to the self-service transition gone to something we called proactive customer service, where we were already expecting staff to get out from behind the desk and make sure that people who were perhaps in the stacks at a branch or were um, you know, over by the copier, wherever they were, that someone approached them and offered assistance uh, if they needed it. So we uh, decided that between that and the kind of changing technology with the tablets, the Wi-Fi, and what we were seeing in other businesses, that this was a time to try uh, going at a service model that was fully mobile and did not incorporate a service desk at all. Okay. Now, I guess, I guess, uh, as from a practical perspective, how does this work? If you are a patron, you walk into your library, and um, you have to pay a fine. Do you find a librarian or or or, or a staff member to um, to do that for you? I guess um, are, are, are all staff members armed with tablets and ready to go? The, uh, anyone who's scheduled to be in public service at that time will have their tablet and be ready to go. But when you walk into the branches that don't have an actual desk, there is kind of a, a service area. So there'll be some shelves with your holds ready to pick up. There'll be a book return where you can return all of your uh, checked out items. There'll be a um, several self-check stations for you to go and check out. There's a place where you can pay your fines through that self-checkout right there at that point. 
so you would not even have to have a staff member, and you could pay either with cash or with your credit card uh, through that self-check device. So um, ideally, when you walked in, there would be a person with a tablet in that general area assisting uh, people. And what we see happening is one staff member will then take someone who says, oh, I'm looking for, you know, uh, nonfiction or DVDs or whatever it is they're looking for, where are they? And they walk with them to that area. And another staff member who has completed a transaction with a, an earlier customer comes and kind of takes their place. So everyone who comes in is welcomed by someone and helped to navigate the uh, building to at least get started on what they're doing. Yeah, it sounds like a wonderful way to kind of I guess, break down that wall between you know, staff and patron where it's much more of a uh, open and um, I guess I wouldn't would say cordial, but um, welcoming environment where we're um, – Well, that's what we're aiming for. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, so that, that when you come in, you know, there's a staff member there. Now, occasionally, just as you would walk up to the desk and there would be no one at the desk at that moment – Occasionally, the staff are all assisting other customers, just like when you're on hold. Um, but um, but they they circle back to that front part of the branch where all of the self service items are, and uh, check in with people there. Or often, uh, the customers who come in go ahead and begin uh, using the library, and then um, when someone is walking by them, they stop and, and check in with that person at that point so that they're not having to hunt for anyone. Um, I did go and, and work an afternoon at one of these branches uh, after it had been open for, oh, maybe a couple of months, just to make sure that everything was working as we expected. And indeed it was. It was tax season, so there were lots of people coming in for tax forms. It was after school, so there were all the kids coming in. So it was a busy time at the branch. And um, I, I saw the staff consistently there welcoming people who were coming in, um, and helping them find the things that they needed. Oh, awesome. Now, um, was there a learning curve um, for staff members to get them uh, uh, acclimated to this new system? Um, there there was. Um, because we are using a, a tablet, to work with the software that we have from our uh, ILS vendor, which is Innovative Interfaces, um, we did have to use a Surface tablet. We couldn't use an iPad or a less expensive type of tablet. It simply didn't work um, properly without that level of um, a Windows device. So that's why we're using the Surface tablets. So they did have to get used to carrying it around. We've tried several different kinds of, of harnesses or little uh, pouches or, or different uh, carrying bags to put them in so that they were easily used but also not dropped uh, or banged against the shelves and things as people were walking around. So there was a little bit of learning curve with getting comfortable with using the touch screen or do I want to flip down the keyboard, you know, how do I want to interact with this tablet. When We do have a docking station on the floor so that if somebody is involved in a, in a more uh, detailed discussion with someone that requires uh, perhaps a shared screen and a bigger screen, they can go to the docking station, click it onto that, and then they're both on the same side of the screen looking at the information together, which certainly makes it easier to explain what you're seeing with someone's card when there's a problem 
or what you're seeing in the catalog when you're looking for a particular item. Those kinds of, of conversations are, are uh, easier to have when you're both uh, on the same side of the keyboard and the same side of the screen and not the staff member trying to describe what they're seeing to the customer who's on the other side of the desk. So there was a, a bit of a learning curve and also getting comfortable with um, moving throughout the building, uh, throughout their shift, you know, talking to people in a more proactive way rather than waiting for them to approach us. It was just a different type of customer interaction than what many of us learned when we started working in libraries. Um, now, um, what kind of feedback? What kind of feedback have you received from patrons to this new to this new model? The funniest thing is, most of them don't even notice. Huh. So, so the feedback, you know, uh, occasionally staff will say, "What's the public saying about the mobile model? Do they like it or not?" And I said, "Did they ever come up to you and say, wow, I really love this model with a big desk here, where you stand on one side and I stand on the other?'" No, they don't. They don't. They don't even comment on it. It just is, especially at the branches that um, we built new buildings at and they opened that way. It's just the way that branch delivers service, and they they um, don't even notice. And sometimes, like last week, we had some people from the state coming through and looking at some of our services and how we were doing things. And uh, as they were getting ready to leave, I said, and this branch is done in our fully mobile service model. And, they, and you'll notice there's no service desk. And they said, well, what does that mean exactly? I mean, they, they had not even noticed that there wasn't that big central desk that we're used to seeing when we walk into a library. So that's really been the most common reaction. We've had a few people who say, I really liked hitting the desk. I knew exactly where to go um, when I wanted to find a staff member. But um, really, it's been a, a very smooth transition for the, for the patrons coming into the branches. Oh, wonderful. Now, um, for libraries um, that are listening to this podcast and they're considering moving to a, um, a similar model that you, you're employing in Cincinnati. Uh, do you have any tips or, or um, advice that you can give them? I think really making it uh, clear to people why you're doing it. Understand that it is kind of a long-term thing. I wouldn't say go from fully staff desk to no desk, all mobile, and one giant leap. You might want to do some interim steps where they have the tablets and are out roaming through the um, through the building, um, but still returning to the desk before you completely eliminate a service desk. Um, it might be a bit of a challenge to go from, you know, the very traditional model to this new model all in one step. Um, listen to the people who are working in that. You know, we did make some changes. Initially, we did not have – the docking station was on this uh, ergonomic cart and could be moved around as well. And it didn't hold a charge. There were just some issues with that. And so we are replacing those at the places that already have them with a kind of a, a single-person, standalone station that just has the docking station and a monitor on it uh, to be used as needed. Um, really separate legitimate concerns from disagreement with the decision. So understanding that. This rolling cart wasn't working. That's a legitimate concern. It's not, I don't want to get out from behind the desk. You know, so really knowing when people are saying something that's just a why I don't want to do it rather than um, this is making it not work for me. Um, 
really don't overthink it. If you go to an AT&T store or to uh, an Apple store or other places, you will see this similar service model already in use. So it's not as if we're creating something from scratch. And be sure to include some training time. We send uh, people whose branch is next in the queue to be transitioned to this to one of the branches that's already up and running this way and, and let them experience it before their branch transitions so that they have a better understanding of how it works. Oh, excellent. Um, yeah, it sounds like a, it's a fascinating model, and it sounds like a successful one. And yeah, like you said, um, uh, it's one that patrons are familiar with from the Apple Store, uh, AT&T Store. It's it's um, it's a familiar model, but uh, seeing it in the library could be a new thing. But it sounds like it's it's working wonderfully. Um, Kim Fender, thanks so much for joining us at Dewey Decimal Podcast. Uh, we're, we've been speaking with Kim Fender. She's the uh, director of the Public Library of Cincinnati in Hamilton County. Thanks so much, Kim. Thank you. Bye bye. Finding the right book to help you or your library move into the future can be a daunting task. Where to begin? I wouldn't even know. However, ALA Publishing does know, and I turn to them whenever I need the right book for the right job. It can be as simple as visiting alastore.ala.org and typing the word future into the search field. Scores of books pop up, from planning our future library's blueprints for 2025 to navigating the future with scenario planning, a guidebook for librarians, and so many, so many more. I see a visit to the ALA store in your future. You can find them at alastore.ala.org. Ryan Gravel is the award-winning creator of the Atlanta Beltline, a 22-mile transit greenway that will connect 40 Atlanta neighborhoods to city schools, shopping districts, and public parks. In his new book, Where We Want to Live, Reclaiming Infrastructure for a New Generation of Cities, he presents a distinct philosophy about how to make cities the kind of places where we truly want to live, and argues that we can take the future into our own hands and improve our way of life by remodeling cities with better infrastructure to reconnect with neighborhoods and people. Dewey Decimal Correspondent and American Libraries Associate Editor Tara Deniskowski sat down with Ryan in Atlanta this past January to discuss his work with the Beltline, his thoughts on the future of urban development, libraries, and much more. Ryan, thank you for uh, being with us today. Um, and congratulations on your book that was released last year, uh, Where We Want to Live, Reclaiming Infrastructure for a New Generation of Cities. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, <laughs> one, of the, one of the themes in your book is this idea um, of shifting our thinking mm -hmm. from car accommodating communities to more people-focused infrastructure. Um, can you describe what a future thriving city looks like for you? Well, I, the most, I think it's really strategic for the most di diverse, um, sorry, I think it's really strategic if cities um, invest in uh, an, the infrastructure for the way that people want to live their lives. The market forces are changing. People want something different today. They're tired of being stuck in traffic. They're tired of the sort of isolation of a lot of car-centric suburban development. It's changing what young people want in particular, but it's also changing what everybody wants. And, um, and the cities that invest in a different kind of infrastructure I think are going to be much more successful. And so what that is, looks like, of course, differs for the specifics of the population or the conditions of each city. Um, but they're all sort of um, uh, create a way of life that is integra integrated, walkable, diverse, um, healthy, sustainable, where um, people can move around without getting stuck in traffic all the time, um, where people see each other, where they look people in the eye, they get to know people 
you know, most people want to live in an interesting place. It doesn't have to be the most interesting place in the world, but it does need to be something special. And when you reclaim old railroads or waterways, those kinds of things that, and make them new, and um, they just, they, they build better and more interesting places, I guess. Um, so in terms of movement of how people move around on infrastructure, I mean, I think the future looks kind of different than it does today. It's much more seamless from a, a transitioning from a car to a bus to a bike, um, and that's all aided by technology. Um, we don't know exactly what that's going to look like just yet, and there's a lot of challenges that come with that, but um, it's exciting to think about. And um, for our listeners who uh, might not be familiar with your work, um, could you speak a little bit to the Atlanta Beltline and how that kind of reflects that future vision of cities? Sure. Um, you know, uh, the city of Atlanta lost population in the 70s and 80s, like most cities across the United States. Um, but, and, and it left, when, it, when people left, they left behind a lot of really great assets um, that are now being rediscovered, one of which is this 22-mile loop of old railroads that circled downtown Atlanta. It was... Um, uh, the idea to reclaim it started as my graduate thesis at Georgia Tech in 1999 um, and has grown um, over the years through a grassroots movement, a people-oriented movement, um, into a truly transformational sort of project that is already changing our lives. Um, it, we're, we're using that loop for uh, a transit line, a streetcar, and a trail, um, and hundreds of acres of new parks, and uh, other connecting greenways and brownfield remediation and redevelopment and community stabilization and public art and public health and you know 5k runs and all kinds of things um, the largest lantern parade in north america for example <laughs> which is funny um, but it's truly transforming our lives we've spent about 450 million dollars so far but in the same time period we've seen well over three billion dollars of private sector development so the public sector through the investment in these in this loop of old railroads and the private sector through the creation of new restaurants and apartments and stores and shopping along the way um, is already really radically transforming our lives. And we're really just in the early stages of, of building it, uh, where we built about five miles of trail and no transit yet. So, and all that change is already here. Um, you can see the change coming and feel it coming, and it's just really exciting to transform a place like Atlanta that has such a reputation for traffic and sprawl into something that's, you know, really desirable place to live. That's wonderful. Um, now, with today's libraries, you know, they have maker spaces and design labs, collaborative workspaces for, you know, a very dedicated user base. Um, with these kind of assets, you know, would you, do you see libraries having a specific role in this type of urban development, you know, this multi-use development? I think the irony with technology is that, you know, with technology, we have, we're, it, it's easier for us to be apart from each other, from go to other places and, and communicate and work remotely. Um, but the, and it's ironic that it's actually making us want to spend more time together, um, to look each other in the eye and, be pla and, and find places where people come together. And cities um, that are, the cities that are doing best today have places where people can come together. And sometimes that's in transportation, um, where, you know, on train or bike or walking, you actually look in people in the eye, unlike driving where everybody's sort of face forward. Um, public spaces and programming of those things to make, provide places where people can come together. And libraries um, obviously play, could play a much larger role in that. 
we don't have all those great things at Vinny Library that I'm aware of in Atlanta right now, but although I've seen them in other cities and I would love to see them here because I think they would really uh, like the Beltline has from an infrastructure standpoint, would start to change the way that people see libraries and what their expectations of them are um, and they would use them more and pay for them. Um, just switching gears, mm -hmm. um, I'm talking to you a day after the presidential inauguration. We might use this interview mm -hmm. um, in our podcast a few okay. months from now. So okay. um, just a little bit of context. Sure. There are marches going on everywhere yeah. today. Yeah. And um, many in this country may be feeling a sense of you know, uncertainty, unrest. Um, and I wanted to ask you something about you, that you blogged um, mm -hmm. this week. You wrote, there are a lot of reasons why the success of cities will not easily be undermined by our new national politics. Mm -hmm. um, why do you think this is? Um, well, when you look at what's happening in cities, uh, the cultural momentum of our time is in favor of cities. Um, in the same way that the cultural momentum of the 1950s and 60s was in the suburbanization of America, highway building and sprawl. Um, that wasn't, I mean, there were decisions that get made that ended up with that, but they were, they were decisions that were made in context of a cultural momentum of moving, getting away from cities. And now everything wants to move towards cities. And the economy that's being driven by cities and the economic opportunities and the uh, market forces, the cultural development and all that is, is in a way kind of exactly what is creating some of the disparity between urban areas, the very successful urban areas, and, and um, less successful areas outside of cities and rural areas, and, and, and highlighting the political uh, divisions and social isolation that we see in communities all over the country. And so I think that despite our politics right now, the cities are going to continue to be the places where uh, people thrive. You know, the, the national politics don't change that. They change how cities approach, uh, look for funding for projects. Um, they, they change uh, some of the attention that has to be paid for to protect diversity, for example, or um, affordability, those kinds of things. Um, but, uh, and we don't have the, we, we may not have the luxury of support from the federal government for a lot of things the cities do rely on, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't change the, the fundamental cultural shift that we've seen in cities, uh, which will survive uh, many more election cycles. Um, you brought up diversity, and you also suggested that we build a wall of diversity around our cities to kind of protect intolerance from encroaching upon them, um, and that we enshrine equity and diversity um, into everything we do, you know, policy, everything on the institutional level. Um, how do we keep equity and diversity at the center of the communities we're building? I think one of the, the core ways really is, is re the real challenge is affordability um, and making sure there's, there's equity, equitable decisions and there's all kinds of other policies that we need to set. But at the end of the day, the thing that, that will stop people who are, stop cities from being able to be diverse is, is people's ability to afford places to live. And so what cities can definitely do um, is double down on affordability. And uh, some cities are doing better jobs than others. Um, and there's lots of things to do. You know, you're helping homeowners or renters or, you know, people, you're helping a lot of people who need a little bit of help or a little people, uh, fewer people who need a lot of help. Um, we need to help everybody and we need to make sure that there are um, places that 
that are affordable. And, you know, Atlanta isn't San Francisco yet or New York, but you, that's where we're going. And so is Dallas and so is L.A. and so is um, any city that's growing right now. It's becoming more and more unaffordable. And, and, and the reason is because the economic forces that drained cities of their uh, economies back in the last century, um, that, was, that was economic forces. That wasn't policy. And there were policies that supported it. Um, but now we don't have protections in place. You know, that, that allowed cities to become these wonderful, thriving places for diversity because they were cheap. Um, and today, um, because we don't protect that affordability, um, they're sort of threatened by homogenization. And it's not hard to look at most any central city and see that happening already. Um, I figured you'd be a, a great person to ask. You saw your thesis you know, yeah. go to fruition. Um, do you have any advice for our listeners, most of whom are library professionals, uh, who may want to get involved in a community project or start mm -hmm. organizing or see an infrastructure mm -hmm. shift in their city or even you know, smaller mm -hmm. neighborhoods? Um, but you know they might not know where to start. You know sure. what would you say to them? Well, I would say that you know, especially now. I mean, our our challenges need uh, big answers, bold answers. You know, we have to think big, and um, and and we need to be inclusive about it. And and when you start doing that, it gets complicated and expensive often. And but I think the lesson is to think big and allow yourself to, you know challenge your own expectations about what that future looks like. You know, if we had started the Beltline with how we were going to pay for it, we never would have done it, you know. And so you have to aspire to that vision, that future that you want. And then, and then you put the technical things, the politics, the budgets, and physics, and engineering should all be put in service to those ideas. And so I, I would just encourage people to not get too uh, hung up on how to pay for it. You know, that's, um, it's important, of course, we have to figure that out, but if we can um, inspire a generation of people or a, or a city of people um, to believe in a different future for themselves, then we'll figure out how to do it. You know, that's not, we can, we can do that. And the Beltline is a great example, obviously. Uh, and, our, and our current mayor in his first election in 2009, you couldn't be a viable candidate for mayor without supporting the project and having some plan for how you were gonna do it better and faster. That's the kind of position you wanted. We still didn't know how we were going to pay for it, and we didn't own the land. <laughs> and now we're we're still, you know, creating this, you know, magical sort of transformation of Atlanta. It's pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ryan, for yeah. talking to American Libraries. Thank you. Well, that wraps another episode of the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Thanks again to Miguel Figueroa, Kim Fender, and Ryan Gravel for joining us this month. And thanks to you for being here with us this past year. Again, we really appreciate it. Join us next month as we dive into a very prescient and important subject, particularly at this point in history. Uh, next month, we discuss privacy. Don't miss it. As always, you can find uh, the Dewey Decimal Podcast on Twitter and Facebook. Stop by, tell us how we're doing, what you'd like to hear from us. Please. We want to hear from you. iTunes listeners, give us a review if you can. Your words and rating help us in the rankings and allow us to reach more ears. If you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email at deweydecibel at ala.org. I promise to get back to you. I really do. Uh, until next month, I'm Phil Morehart, Associate Editor of American Libraries Magazine, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. I, I work kind of by myself, which isn't the worst thing in the world, but it also gets a little lonely.